Bob Dippin, and this is Closer Look. Here with us is Pat Awesome with the Partnership to End Addiction. Pat, how did this fentanyl issue seem to kind of come out of nowhere? Well, actually, Bob, it's been around for a while. If you think about what has transpired in the United States over the past decade or so, there was a huge amount of prescribing of prescription pain medications like Oxycontin, Vicodin, Percocet, and so forth. And as we realized that those medications really caused a great deal of addiction in many people, people turned to heroin because it was less expensive. But if you think about heroin, right, you need a field to grow poppies with lots of sunshine and water, and then you have to harvest it and so forth. Making fentanyl in a lab became exceedingly less expensive and it's smaller in size and more potent. And so it's just everywhere in our drug supply. Well, it does have a true medicinal use, does it not? Yes, it does. It's actually been used, um, I think it's since the mid-50s or 60s for surgery. Let's start off with cardiovascular surgery, and it's been used for different purposes in that regard. But this is fentanyl that's created in a lab and sold illicitly. Doesn't even just a few grains of sand of fentanyl kill? It depends on a person's tolerance. So there are people out there who have taken a lot of fentanyl and they are able to continue to function on some level. And for other people, though, who either haven't used an opioid in a long time, just got out of detox or have been incarcerated, as an example, or someone who unknowingly takes a counterfeit pill that has fentanyl in it, they can come under respiratory distress and ultimately overdose. And if the overdose is not reversed in time, they will die. And you talked about fake pills. And I've seen some of these look almost exactly like the real article. Yeah, it's terrifying. The DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, issued its first alert in six years. And basically what they said was that the country's being flooded with counterfeit pills. And you're right, they look exactly like the real deal. They have the same color, the same size, the same print on the pill itself. But they're finding it in prescription pain pills, again, Oxycontin, Vicodin, Percocet, and so forth. But also in Xanax, which is used to treat like a panic disorder, or Adderall, which is used to treat ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And also I should point out that not only is it in counterfeit pills, but fentanyl is also being found in stimulants. So we're finding it in cocaine and meth, and it's also being found in ecstasy. So it's really a scary time with respect to any kind of substance use, or if you think you're gonna get a pill from the black market, if you will, because you can't afford whatever your prescription pills are. It just is a dangerous thing given the fentanyl that's in the drug supply. Pat, the earlier we talk to young people, the less likely they'll drift into drug abuse. But how early is early? So that's such a great question, Bob. Early is talking to kids about safe medication use when they're in elementary school. So, you know, this is why we take vitamins and this is why we only take one gummy bear vitamin at a time. And then as kids get older, especially when they are in middle school, they are going to begin to be exposed more and more to pictures or movies or seeing people on the street or whatever using substances, whether it's alcohol or other drugs. 
And so it's really important to start talking at that time about what the concerns are with respect to substance use and not using scare tactics, but really explaining how this can impact a young person. So why is substance abuse so easy to slip into, especially with kids and teens? Is it kind of a rite of passage? There are lots of rites of passage as a teenager, but this certainly isn't a healthy one. The biggest issue is brain development. So if you think about teenagers, they may be taller than you, they they may look like adults, but their brains haven't fully developed and they won't be fully developed until they're in their mid-20s. So any substance use during that time frame can really alter the way the brain ultimately develops. And that's the biggest concern because if you use substances before the age of 18, you have a one in four chance of developing an addiction. Whereas if you, as an example, if you wait until after you're 21, it's one in 25. Let's talk about recovery then. Somebody has to really desire to quit, am I right? So I think people can be influenced to want to quit. I mean, ultimately, it's going to be the individual's decision. But parents have the ability to motivate kids and influence kids and move them in a direction of well-being. So recovery requires a community of support? Recovery requires a lot of different things. I think the first part of it is really learning new skills to address the underlying reason that someone was using substances in the first place. So if you think about it, some people are using it as they're bored. Some people have insomnia. Maybe it's out of curiosity or thrill-seeking. So part of it is learning new skills that will help you address those underlying needs in a healthier way. It also helps to surround yourself with people that are also interested in their well-being and move in that direction. Sometimes looking at support groups can be very helpful. Having a structured routine in your life. For some people, spiritual practices can be very helpful. And certainly there are these basal standbys of getting exercise and good nutrition and, and really solid sleep can be really helpful in recovery. It's different ways to cope with their stress. Exactly. Coping with stress is really important and really learning, like I said, healthier ways to do that. Sometimes people can't get help because treatment costs money. Is there anything going on where people can get into a recovery program and, and get it for free? So there is a really great service called safelocator.org. And Safe Locator allows you to go into a treatment finder and you can go through it and answer what kind of care you're looking for. And that's really important to find something that is going to meet the needs of that particular individual. As an example, somebody may have a substance use problem and may also have depression or bipolar disorder or some other mental health disorder. And so finding the right treatment for that person is going to be really important. So if you answer the questions on Safe Locator, you can also say that you need help with the financial part of it. And it will come up with different options in terms of finding services that are either low cost, sliding scale, or free. Now, we've heard in the past that initial recovery takes about 30 days, but that really isn't enough, right? I think people typically think of 30 days for residential treatment. Some people are very successful at going to a counselor, perhaps with a psychiatrist and medication. Some people go to an intensive outpatient program. Those typically last for three to four months where you're going three hours a day, two or three times a week, or you could go to residential treatment. But in 
residential treatment is typically 30 days, but the most important part of it is when you discharge because in residential treatment, you're in a bubble, right? So you're not dealing with day-to-day problems and things of that nature. So when you are discharged, you need to have a really comprehensive plan of what's next. You know, what are you going to do for work? What are you going to do for school? What are your social supports? Are you going to go to 12-step meetings or smart recovery meetings? Are you going to have to take medications that could be really crucial for your treatment? Do you have transportation to get there? So all of those different things need to be considered. And in addition to that, by the way, family support, assuming that you are going back home, would be really important as part of your ongoing treatment. Pat Austin with the Partnership and Addiction is our guest on Closer Look, and I'm Bob Dittman. We've heard with alcoholics, it isn't that they want a drink, it's that they want 10 drinks. Is the same kind of true with drug abuse? It can vary depending on the person, right? So some people will have one drink and that's it. You know, they're very satisfied with that one drink. There are other people that, as you noted, will want more drinks to get the same effect. And that's known as tolerance. And you do see the same thing with other drugs. Some people will smoke marijuana and or eat some gummies or something like that. And that will be the end of it. But for other people, it can mean that when they used to use a substance, say, just on the weekends, now all of a sudden they're using it every day. Or they are getting up first thing in the morning and starting to use substances, whereas they used to wait until after work. Tolerance plays a big role for many people with substance use disorders. Out of curiosity, how long has the Partnership to End Addiction been around? That's a great question. You may recall the Partnership for Drug-Free America, which was created in the 80s, and then it became the Partnership for Drug-Free Kids. And the, the most iconic way many people remember are by the ads, the public service announcements that were created. The most iconic one being, you know, this is your brain on drugs and it was the egg frying in a pan. I do remember that one. And many people remember that one. Times have changed. I don't know that we would put that particular advertisement out at this this stage of the game since we know so much more about brain development and whatnot. But in any event, the organization then merged with Center on Addiction, which is a phenomenal research and policy organization with respect to substance use a couple of years ago. After the merger, we decided to change the name to Partnership to End Addiction. What does the Partnership to End Addiction do to help? People can go to your website and find information, but what's there? So the Partnership to End Addiction is a nationwide nonprofit with some of the most amazing people in it that I've ever met. We really support families who have a loved one struggling with substance use, primarily children. And when I say child, it could be a child of any age. So we've had people come in saying, I really want help on the prevention side of things with someone who is 12 or 13 years old. We've had people come to us looking for help for their adult child who's in their 50s. One of the things that we offer is a helpline. So our helpline is bilingual and it allows people to come in. You can schedule a call for a half hour with one of our helpline specialists and they will listen to what you have to say. And Bob, for many people, that's the first time that they felt comfortable sharing something like this because there's so much stigma attached to 
substance use problems, but they'll listen to what you have to say and then they will help guide you toward resources or help you develop a plan of how you want to support your loved ones. We also have a lot of information on the website about alcohol, marijuana, vaping, opioids. We have a wonderful tool. It's called Help and Hope by Text. You simply text JOIN to 55753 and you can answer a few questions and then we will tailor a text-based support program to your particular situation. So then you'll get text and it depends on the program, but it may be that you're looking for treatment for your loved one, or it may be that they're in recovery. You may be trying to prevent substance use from escalating, or in fact, you may have lost a loved one to substance use and you will get text messages that have resources in them, support, different videos and things like that that can be very, very helpful for families. We also have an online support community. So the calls are held, there are Zoom calls held in the evenings for about an hour each evening. And it's hosted by our, we have peer parent coaches who are people with lived experience that we've trained and they will facilitate a very solutions-focused kind of support group for family members. They may talk about how you engage in your own self-care, how to find treatment, communication skills so that your conversations with your loved one don't implode and that you, you know, or fall on deaf ears, and also ways to encourage healthier behaviors. And there are many, many other tools, but those are some of the key ones that I thought I'd highlight. Pat Awesome of the Partnership to End Addiction has been our guest on Closer Look, and I'm Bob Dippman. One pill can kill. That's the message from Song for Charlie, a family-run nonprofit charity that encourages young people to choose healthy coping strategies over self-medication. With us is Ed Trinan from Song for Charlie, and welcome to Closer Look, Ed. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, there's a reason your organization is called Song for Charlie, and it's very personal. Tell us why. Well, the organization, my wife Mary and I formed our nonprofit after we lost our youngest son, Charlie Ternan, in May of 2020. Charlie was a college senior about a month away from graduating when on a random Thursday afternoon while waiting for a telephone job interview, he decided to go online and buy what he thought was a Percocet, what he was told was a Percocet. What he got instead turned out to be a counterfeit prescription pill, what we've nicknamed Fentapils. And this was a fake pharmaceutical that was made entirely of the powerful opioid fentanyl. And the doctors say Charlie probably died about 15 minutes after taking that pill. And so Mary and I formed Song for Charlie shortly thereafter to warn young people about this new danger of counterfeit prescription pills. Obviously, drug dealers don't care a whole lot about what they put in their pills. However, why is fentanyl so dangerous? Well, fentanyl is an extremely potent opioid and used in a closely supervised medical environment. It's a very effective pain reliever. The problem is it's not that difficult to manufacture or synthesize an illicit version of this. And because it's so powerful, it's the ideal raw material for drug dealers. A little bit goes a long way. So they can make a whole bunch of these fake pills with just a little bit of fentanyl. It's cheap. It's very hard to detect. It has no odor. It's very strong and it's extremely profitable. 
So this is now the raw material of choice among drug trafficking organizations and the street dealers that sell these pills. You say fentanyl's very easily available out there, but why now? Well, there's several different factors that are kind of converging here. One is this mega trend that I just alluded to in the drug trafficking world, this shift from relying on organic or plant-based substances to make our drugs, our recreational drugs, to synthetics, which are just, it's just a better mousetrap. It's a better business model and much more profitable. If you look at things like heroin, if relying on the opium poppy and having to cultivate that and process that is much more labor intensive and expensive than it is to mix up some fentanyl in a five gallon paint bucket. So that's happening because it's convenient and profitable for the drug traffickers. And the spike in deaths is you know, a combination of a couple of things. The very real youth mental health crisis we have going on in this country, exacerbated by COVID lockdowns, and then this practice of drug dealers of selling what they tell young people is a Xanax or an Oxy or a Percocet under false pretenses and deceiving them into thinking these pills are real when in fact they're counterfeits made with fentanyl. And that's why you've got young people dying in record numbers because they're consuming fentanyl but without their own knowledge. They're not asking for fentanyl, but that's what the drug traffickers are giving them. So you have to assume that any prescription pill you buy outside of normal channels is fake and possibly deadly. So that's what you're calling a fentapil. That's correct. And that really needs to be the starting point for young people and parents. They need to understand that when we talk about the idea that the U.S. market, the street market and online market for prescription pills has been flooded by counterfeits, we are not exaggerating. You really have to assume that any pill you get outside of normal channels, the way we put it is, if it doesn't come from a bottle that has two names on it, yours and your doctor's, you have to assume that's fake. And if it's fake, it's made of fentanyl, which is very, very potent. And these pills are not dosed properly. There's no quality control. And so one pill may have no fentanyl in it and the other may have enough to kill five adults. So it's an extremely risky behavior these days to go online or on the street or in the locker room or at a party and take a pill from someone without knowing that it comes from a legitimate source. And, you know, I was looking at your website and you were showing a fake pill versus a real pill, and they look almost identical. They're very real looking. And it's important to understand that this is not going to go away that the move from the farm to the lab, adopting synthetics as the raw material of choice. And there are others in the pipeline behind fentanyl, other synthetic opioids and benzos that the drug traffickers are formulating now. And so this trend is not going to go away. This is completely different. And so we need to warn everyone that the drugs that are on the street are more volatile, and unpredictable, and what's in them is very hard to determine. And sadly, it's as though the drug trafficking organizations are, these days, they're kind of keyboard chemists trying new formulations of synthetic substances to meet the market demand and essentially using the U.S. drug consumer as their lab rats. They're continuing to get better at making these pills look more and more real. They're working very hard at this deception. It's not happening by accident, and it's not going to go away. On Closer Look is Ed Tanan from Song for Charlie, and we're talking about how one pill can kill. I'm Bob Dittman.
And stress is something we all feel, at least from time to time. But your message is healthy coping. What does that mean? We were part of a market research study that was done within the last year or so where we polled a couple thousand young people of high school and college age in the United States. And and 86% of them reported feeling overwhelmed. And I don't think it's a secret. And I think it's indisputable that young people today are feeling a lot of pressure. They've grown up in an age where they're being bombarded by information online. Social media exacerbates and amplifies all the normal social pressures that young people feel. Unfortunately, as a culture, we've kind of raised our kids in an area where there's a pill to solve any problem. This is the generation that's coming of age now. We began medicating them in grammar school for learning disabilities, differences with Adderall or Ritalin. And they're all used to having Oxycontin when they get their wisdom teeth out or hurt their knee in volleyball. So these kids are really stressed out. And we have to tell them that this quick fix, pop a pill, find a pill to relieve your stress, that solution has to be taken off the playlist. It's too dangerous now. So healthy coping skills are no longer kind of a nice to have. They're a survival skill. We have to really encourage kids to develop long-term, sustainable, natural ways to adjust their mood, change their brain chemistry, and feel better. And, And there are ways to do that. And we need to encourage that and hopefully inform kids and and encourage them to turn away from the kind of what our initiative is on our website. We call it Farm Over Pharma. Let's go natural instead of synthetic, right? Let's find natural solutions for our very real stress. And our tagline is you can't fix real stress with fake pills. How are you helping young people from trying drugs to other coping methods? Our main focus right now is just awareness and giving kids the knowledge they need to make better decisions. So we have a very robust social media presence. We have 75,000 followers, mostly on Snapchat and TikTok, which is where young people are, but also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc. And we're trying to cut through all of the noise and just go straight to the young people with this message that number one, the pills you may come across online or on the street are fake and extremely dangerous. Number two, let's acknowledge and honor the fact that you feel stressed out and that is very valid. All of your friends are feeling a similar way. Let's shift over now to these healthier coping strategies. So right now it's really a knowledge campaign. We still say just say no, but we spell it K-N-O-W. Because many of these young victims are dying by taking a substance they didn't ask for, we think simply by getting the word out really broadly at scale using social media that we can reduce these deaths because we think a significant number of these young people will say, wow, I didn't know that. Thank you for telling me that. I will change my behavior. Was education the only key? I think it is the highest value thing we can do. There are efforts and always have been in the area of, quote, the war on drugs to reduce supply, reduce demand, and reduce harm. Those are kind of the three major stakeholder groups. And harm reduction people and prevention education people, the demand reduction, and law enforcement interdiction, the supply reduction, 
They're all working very hard, but it's going to take time for us to adjust as a society to this new dynamic of potent synthetics and deceptive marketing. And while that sausage is being made, we think awareness and knowledge and education is the fastest way to reduce the amount of drug deaths, especially among young people. And Jordan from Song for Charlie is our guest on Closer Look, and I'm Bob Dutman. You know, in looking at your website, it's quite extensive and, and a great resource, too. I noticed something that caught my eye on coping with stress, and that's humor or laughter. Why so? We know a lot these days about how the brain works and neuroscience and neurobiology. And we want to encourage kids and inform kids that there really are simple ways to change your brain chemistry and feel better and change your mood organically. And laughter, exercise, prayer and meditation, these things actually change your brain chemistry and the electrical signals that are firing off in your brain in similar ways to these artificial substances. The name of the organization is Song for Charlie from Charlie's Song, love for music and art and movies. And again, creativity. We want to teach kids for the long term that as they go through life, real human connection, prayer and meditation, fresh air, all the things your grandmother told you when you were growing up turn out to really be true. And in an age of social media and internet and constant uh, information bombardment and toe popping quick fix culture, turning away from all, all that into these old fashioned things like humor and human connection and creativity and art and exercise. Those things are where I think we need to get back to. Now say I want to get involved. How can I raise awareness to the problem? Well, you can go to songforcharlie.org and explore the resources on our website. Any individual can have this conversation around the kitchen table with kids and with grandchildren. And I think it's important to frame it outside of the typical drug talk. What young people today want is information. They don't want to be told what to do so much as where to go and learn more on their own. And so framing this more as a health warning, as a concern, kind of like, be careful, there's sharks in the water. It's not a moral judgment, don't do drugs, they're bad for you. It's son, daughter, I love you. You need to know that the drug supply is really polluted these days with these very strong chemicals and it's unpredictable and you don't know what you're getting. So more than ever, you have to understand that and open a dialogue so you can have conversations with the young people, with your own family and with your own friend circle and your community. Just having the conversation is important. There's a lot of resources at songforcharlie.org. And if you want to call on your local schools or community groups or church groups, that's fantastic as well. It's really just about getting the word out to people that the drug landscape has changed instead of kind of a journey where one day you might become addicted and overdose. Now it's more like a minefield where your next step could be your last. So we, with a sense of urgency, we encourage people to have the conversation and get knowledgeable, learn as much as they can. Ed, if somebody has had a loved one affected by a fentanyl overdose, what's your message to them? Well, now we're getting into, you know, a very deep area. We know a lot of these families and we have Zoom meetings for affected family members periodically at Song for Charlie. And this is a shocking loss to a family because people lose kids, sadly, 
from many causes all the time. And that is a very traumatic death. It's an out of order death. And it's at the very top of the grief hierarchy, the loss of a child. But this loss is also has kind of another layer to it because it's so unexpected. It is really traumatic. So what I would say is to parents who have experienced this, take care of yourself, be gentle with yourself, connect with others who have lost a child. If you can find others at Song for Charlie and other organizations who have lost a child to fentanyl, please reach out because we do support each other. We lean on each other and we try and learn and support one another and we're there for you. So again, if somebody wants to reach out to your organization, how do they do so? You can find us at songforcharlie.org. All our contact information is there. All of the resources that we have developed, including videos, learning materials for schools, content for kids consumed directly. It's all there and it's all free. And we encourage people to go there and learn more. Anything you'd like to add, a final message? I'd like to thank you for and your listeners for hearing about this situation and taking a little time to learn about it. This is a national crisis. We haven't really begun to flatten this curve yet. And the very important first step is to make sure that everyone in the United States understands that there are counterfeit pills that have flooded the market and fentanyl and other synthetic substances like it have completely polluted the street drug supply. And everyone needs to kind of open their eyes to this new reality that we've got out there and start changing the way we talk about it. Ed Tadano's song for Charlie has been our guest on Closer Look, and I'm Bob Dittman.